Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is Gary Young. Gary is an award-winning journalist and professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. From Mandela's election campaign to Obama's presidency, Gary's had a ringside seat for some of the biggest stories of the last 30 years. His latest book, Dispatches from the Diaspora, is a career-spanning collection of articles about race, racism, and black life. His contribution to the debate on identity politics, knife crime, and gun control has been significant, and he's shared stories of people caught up in violence to make their lives and deaths means something more than a statistic. Because Gary has a sense of purpose that you can trace back to his childhood and a mother whose politics informed his writing. He and I met fleetingly back in 1994. So this was a wonderful opportunity to learn more about a journalist I've long admired. Gary, like you, as a, a young man, I spent a year teaching in Africa. In my case, it was Uganda. In yours, Sudan. How did that come about and what did it tell you? It was a really interesting year. It came about because there was a leaflet on the wall of our sixth form about this thing called Project Trust, which I had never heard of. And one of the supply teachers, her daughter, had done it. And it all seemed very eccentric. You had to go to the Isle of Col and train, which is like the the furthest in Britain I'd ever been. It's in the Hebrides from Stevenage. And then they would send you somewhere. And all I knew, I'd grown up under this kind of Caribbean matriarchy in Stevenage. And all I knew was that I couldn't do another year of academia. I was burnt out. I was 17. I'd been put up a year. My hair was falling out. I'd fainted a couple of times. I was so driven in terms of getting these exams that 
I knew I needed to do something else. So I wrote a letter off to this leaflet on the wall and I was sent to Sudan, which was shortly before the coup. And it was an amazing year for two reasons. First of all, it was an amazing year because I was liberated from doing exams, being in academia. I could finally think about who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And it was a serious gear shift in terms of kind of growing up. But also, weirdly, I learned much more about Britain than I did about Sudan. It was in Sudan that I learned that I'd been to a comprehensive school. I thought I'd just been to school. Those were the schools. But 12 of the people in Sudan had been to private schools, including Eton and Gordonston. And so they said, oh, was the school you went to a comprehensive? And I kind of struggled to, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> did you need exams to go there? Did you pay any money? And they were like, okay, so that's a comprehensive. And what I learned mostly in that year was about class in Britain. And what I learned was, after being very intimidated initially, that these young people, many of whom I'm still in touch with, one of whom was the best man at my wedding and is still my best friend, were extremely confident, socially confident, sexually confident, kind of intellectually confident, but no brighter than most of the people in my school. And that there was this performance that came with them that would be intimidating if you didn't realize that. And for all of the ways in which my upbringing, single parent, black and Stevenage and so on, had involved its struggles, there was also some freedom in there as to who I thought I could be and what I thought I could be. And that actually for all the kind of wealth and privilege they had, in some ways they had less freedom. They were kind of quite confined about who they might mix with, what colleges they might go to. Not just that they went to Oxford or Cambridge, but which college at Oxford and Cambridge they would go to, mm. and so on. So peculiar that you would have to go all the way to Sudan to find that out. But honestly, I, I think I learned more about Britain than I did about Sudan in that year. What's interesting is, I guess, that Stevenage was not a particularly black town. Not at all. No. And therefore, this was the first time you'd ever lived amongst your own ethnicity. Yeah. Although being in Sudan and being black forced a reckoning, you know, I'd grown up not describing myself as British because it didn't feel like a category that was open to me in the 70s and the 80s. Ooh, cold, isn't it? Not like where you come from. And I'd be like, I come from just down the road, you know, and where are you really from? All that stuff. And then I go to Sudan and people say, well, you know, where are you from? What am I going to tell them? You know, I'm from Barbados. Well, I went there once for six weeks when I was four. You know, meaningfully say I was from Africa, although, yes, a long time ago in a way. And people would insist, no, you're an African man. I was there between 86 and 87. And the election was in 87. And a guy I knew, he came running up to me maybe a week after the election and he says, you're true, you're true, there are black Englishmen. And he held up a picture, and it was the picture of the four black MPs <laughs> who had gone into Parliament, who were making news all around the black diaspora. And I said, yes, yes. And it was the beginning of me thinking, you know, it was this picture of Diane Abbott and Bernie Grant and Keith Vaz and Paul Boateng, of thinking, okay, maybe there's a way to do this. Because I was working with people who had no country who had no rights. They had Eritrea, but Eritrea was at war and they couldn't go there. They had no passport. And here was I with this very valuable citizenship and with this personal 
story saying, well, I'm not, you know, turning my back on it. And I just thought, well, you're going to have to find a way to make your peace with this. It's an extraordinary account because it's quite a contrast from my own experience in a very, very remote school on the banks of the Nile in Uganda, where there were two Catholic priests, both white, and otherwise it was a completely black community. Mm. And, um, I mean, I had never really I was going to say, what did Met I feel like? black people. Where did you grow up, John? I grew up in first in Sussex and then in North Yorkshire. Right, yeah. Um, but both in rural circumstances. Right. So I was a very sheltered character. Um, and what made you want to go to Uganda? For some reason, I'd always wanted to volunteer mm. and have a year out and do something very, very different. And I had a wanderlust without really knowing it. And I, I took to Africa like a duck to water and loved it. And how did that change your understanding of yourself racially to be this minority in this place for a year? Ah, it's a very interesting question. I mean, there were white people on the staff who wielded power. Mm. So we were still in charge, even though we were a tiny minority. Mm. So I'm not sure I ever really resolved whatever the answer to that was. Right. Because even though, I mean, it's a different kind of minority, as you suggest, mm. it's a powerful minority as opposed to having less power, there's still that sense of being looked at, of being different, of being understood as different, mm. of the assumptions that people will make when they see you about all sorts of things that they, they've never met you, but they will assume what music you listen to, what food you eat. I guess I just wonder whether that created any ripples in you. It did. On. It did. Unquestionably. I, I, I mean, I'd lived a very sheltered life. <laughs> um, but it's a fantastic thing to have done, isn't it? It really is. When your mind is ripe for not just taking things in in some kind of guileless way, but processing these things with a kind of freedom that also has responsibilities attached. So I was teaching in a United Nations refugee school. I was teaching refugees. And Eritreans. So, Eritrean yeah. refugees. People were dependent on what I did. Mm. You know, I had to prepare my lessons. And you learn pretty quickly. And up until that point, nobody had depended on what I did. Nobody, you know, if I studied or didn't study, it was all for me. It was like a catalyzing moment mm. in my personal development. I'm wondering, I mean, did you regard yourself as a West Indian or as a black man in a white country? I mean, how did you see yourself in that youthful phase? Growing up in Stevenage, it always depended who was asking as to what my answer would be as to where you're from. So sometimes I would insist that I was from here. Mm. And sometimes I would insist I wasn't. And I wanted it both ways. And in some ways, both were true. So it was confused and contingent. I remember my brother used to say, we fly a flag of convenience. You know, when we watched football, we supported the Brazilians, cricket, the West Indies, rugby, the Welsh. And it wasn't just who was best. It was also who we felt more akin to in a particular moment. And when there's no 
black footballers in the team and there's no black cricketers in the team and there's no black rugby players in the team and my brother was very good at football and they would call him Pale because you know what else are they going to call him they couldn't call him Saka or uh, Rashford or any of those things so you were forced to imagine yourself in this range of ways and it, it was compounded there was a racial aspect which was as far as I was aware Black British history started with my mum. Do you know what I mean? I had no Hmm. sense of the past or I don't think I'd heard of Windrush, you know, going to school. And did she talk of the West Indies as home? Oh, yes, yes. We had a Barbadian flag on the door, like a little seal flag that she got from the Commonwealth Institute. She'd say, when you're out there, you do what you do. When you come in here, you're in Barbados. It's our rules. Like immigrants of many races. We had a little map on the wall. Did I, you go to Barbados I went as once a child? when I was four. Very expensive. I went once when I was four um, with the whole family. Once again when I was 18. Then my mother died when I was 19 and she wanted to be buried in Barbados. So then we went back to bury her there. So a, a very clear sense of how my presence in Britain was mitigated by a range of stories. But also I grew up in Steenwich, which was a new town, which was built in 1948. And so if I'd grown up in Liverpool or Manchester and or Rochdale or somewhere where you could be surrounded by a sense of, well, this happened there, you know, Rochdale Pioneers or... But Stevenage... Had no black history. It had no history. I mean, it was literally kind of created in 1948. I mean, it was paved over the the, uh, green and pleasant land. And so there was that too. There was this sense of almost being in suspended animation. But there was one interesting thing I want to say about Stevenage and its racial landscape, because there were very few of us. And yet the most famous people to come out of Stevenage are Lewis Hamilton, Ashley Young, Roland Butcher, first black player mm. to play um, cricket for England. Giles Torreira, the actor who was in Hamilton. He's had two black mayors, so one black chief of police. I can't explain fully any of this, but it is intriguing to me from such a small black population to have so many people of kind of national repute from there. You didn't mention Gary Young. <laughs> I did not mention Gary Young. That would be weird. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, it is an extraordinary beginning from which to spring to where you are now. You see, in terms of class mobility, certainly, like many people make that full journey. But one of the things I think that Stevenage had, it was created by the Labour government in 48, same year as the NHS, but the same zeal, social democratic zeal, if you like. And so it had the resources in certain ways. When I gave up French at school, I could do it at the local college. When I got my O-level at the local college, I could do my A-level at the local college. And there was, a, there was a sense that, yeah, if you want to do that, then yes, you can do that. We will make that possible for mm. you. Because I was a low-income, single-parent family, the county council used to give us some money mm. when we stayed on at school. So there were all of these ways in which the state was there, mm. or the municipality, whatever, to support and sustain if that's what you wanted to do. So there are some ways in which it feels kind of logical and possible in a way that I don't think it would be possible now, sadly. Did you encounter racism? Oh, lots of it. As a child? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, 
the family up the street that just used to shout abuse kind of regularly. And we, you know, my mum called the police. This was the first time I heard the word ethnic minority. So I remember it well. That she called the police because from the moment they saw us, they were just now shouting. Mm. It just got too much. And she called the police and the first policeman came and he said, well, you're an ethnic minority, so you'll just have to put up with that. And I said to my mum, what does that mean? What does ethnic minority mean? And she said something to the effect of, he thinks that because we're black, we have to put up with it. And so then she called the police station back and she said, I asked for a policeman. You sent me an idiot. I need a policeman. My mum, who became a teacher, had racist stuff scrawled into her desk. I mean, it was a fairly, not daily, but constant and consistent feature of growing up there, which rarely felt, particularly because it was the 70s, I rarely felt that, you know, my life was in danger. But there were just these people that you had to deal with. uh, And that was life. Were you very bright at school? I was good at exams. And I was well prepared. I had a Barbadian mother who wasn't going to let me go to school without me knowing my ABCs and my numbers and all of that stuff. And I was probably early on a bit odd. One very early memory I have is of my teacher at, I guess, daycare saying, uh, what have you done? And looking at my fingers and they were red and I'd been, I used to scratch my head until it bled. And I was taken to an educational psychologist. And fortunately, I was taken to a good one who said, I think he's just bored. Why don't you let him start school next Mm. year? And then he can always wait a year in infant Mm. school or something. And so I did end up finishing school early. But more, and the head scratching kind of speaks to this, really. I was very driven and quite anxious and very precocious. At 15, I joined the Trotskyist movement. I left when I was 16, just shortly before they kicked me out. But I used to go with my mum to picket this African embassy mm. on a Friday evening at kind of 16. You know, I was old before my years in some way. I would just love, as you've mentioned her so much, to talk about your mum. Mm. Can you tell us more about who she was to you? Yeah, she. my mum came to Britain in 1962. Interestingly... Just when the first really awful immigration law was coming in, and tangentially at the behest of Enoch Powell, who was the health secretary at the time, and who was undertaking a huge restructuring of the health service. So my mum came as a nurse, and she'd studied, I believe, English language, European history, and British constitution as her A-levels. She came thinking that British people knew Shakespeare and being completely bamboozled when I think she was sent to Derby to train as a nurse to learn that that wasn't the case. And she knew my dad from Barbados, but they got together in London and had my brothers and then later had me. And then my dad left when I was one. And mum carried on being a nurse for a little while and then shifted to teaching so that she could have the holidays off with us. And she was this force. She was a force of nature. She did several jobs, youth work, summer play schemes. At home, we were raised with a kind of very clear sense of some kind of anti-colonial sensibility that she would often be saying, it's not as easy as that. It's not as straightforward as that. 
when we watched what was going on in Northern Ireland in the 70s, she, she would say, those poor people. And I'd be like, which poor people? And she would be trying to make it clear. And she had these phrases that, they're your people. So I remember her making us watch the Holocaust miniseries in 1979, which is a bit rough because I was just 10, 11. And her saying, these are your people too. And so I was raised with this very clear sense of my people being of different ranges of oppressed people in some way and that it wasn't bound at all by um by race yeah hmm. and she was a striver you know that people don't make those journeys so they can claim benefits you know, generally speaking. And so she wanted the best for her boys, these three boys that she raised by herself. And at times it felt not like a matriarchy. It could feel like a tyranny. It mm. was like, you know, you're going to do this and you're not going to do that. But I was raised grateful for it, not least because I was raised with a sense of my possibility. So she used to walk us around the house with me on her feet to Young, Gifted and Black, the song Young, Gifted and Black. And she'd say, they're playing our song. And when I think back to that in the 70s with all that was going on, it's not just an act of love. It's an act of, of courage and daring, playful as it is. Politicization. Yeah, yeah. And so I was always raised never to feel more than, never, but also never to feel less than. Just, you know, just be yourself, do your thing. And this sense that that she gave me that the world's not ready for you yet. And it didn't mean, she didn't mean that you're a genius. She just meant whatever you're going to do, you're going to have to make yourself, which was a beautiful gift to be um, given by a parent. You're listening to Snowcast with me, Jon Snow. And we'll be right back after this. 
the year I applied was either the year Gorby took over or by the time I left university, Glasnost had just started. Mm. So it, it was, was a very exciting time. It was a very exciting time and a very weird time. And when we forget how incredible Gorby was. Yeah. And what a shock. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a university's two wonderful Russian lecturers, Jim uh, Halliday and Elena Crosby. And I remember Jim when we started saying, it used to be really easy to interpret a Russian, you know, a Soviet speech. You saw the guy's name, you saw the subject, you knew what he was going to say. Now, we have no idea what he's going to say. <laughs> like now, like all gloves are off, we really don't know until it's come out of their mouth. Probably the speeches that you're doing in French and German are more predictable. He was right. What it did give me, though, that course was a love of language, particularly the written word, which is about finding the right word, about manipulating language. So it gave me that. And at the same time, like you, I think, I was very involved in student politics. And so with that... This was where? This in was Harriet Watt. Harriet Watt, yeah. In Scotland. Yeah. And so that combination of being politically involved and engaged and developing this quite granular love of language found its home in in journalism. A love of language even before you knew you could write beautifully in English? C certainly a love of language before I thought about writing, yeah. And did that come at university? It started there, yeah. It started there. And I felt, he says immodestly, this is something I think I could do with some help. Did you think you could make a living from it? God, no. No. I mean, it's one of those things, I didn't know anybody who made a living from it. It seemed very remote. Mm. It seemed like a very remote possibility. But I'd been raised with the sense that whatever you're going to do, nobody's thought of it before for you. Not that you're going to split an atom or anything like that, but you're going to have to imagine yourself into the world because in a way that sounds less is less dramatic than it may sound, the world's not quite ready for you yet in whatever you want to do. So you're just going to have to go and do it. Did you then, whilst you were still at university, write for the magazine? Or well, was there any published material at all? I did a piece for the Scotsman. I was running a rent strike. A very lovely man, Donald MacLeod, who went on to write for The Guardian, mm. he said, would you like to write anything? I was slightly arrogant enough to think, well, I want to be written about. I don't want to write things. It's a bit ridiculous. I'm the story. <laughs> yes. And also, it seemed, like I said, remote. But then I did write a few things for the student supplement, and I really enjoyed it. And then I got a check. I got a check for, you know, £45 or something. Not an awful lot of money even then. And I thought, oh, this is something that you might get paid for. This That's interesting. Then I went away to do my year abroad, studied in Paris and Leningrad, as it was. And Paris had been the most intense racist experience I'd ever had. I was beaten up by the police. I was stopped regularly. And it kind of ran counter to people's understanding of the James Baldwin, you know, uh, Richard Wright, Paris. And um, the Scotsman took a piece from me for their comment pages about my experiences in Paris. That was the beginning? Yeah. And did you even then know that it was something you could do and would do? No, I thought it was something that I'd like to do. And of the things that were around, it was the thing that I most enjoyed where it was possible to earn some money. I was finishing my 
degree, mm. and I saw an ad in The Guardian for bursaries to study journalism. And mm. I thought, that's what I need. Like, I think I can do this, but I need some help. This was 92. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is interesting and important that, uh, that the source of these bursaries came from the race rebellions in the late 80s, in 87, and that the Scott Trust had seen that there was insufficient black journalists. And so they decided to set up this bursary, which was not exclusively for black journalists, but would give special attention to non-white journalists to study in journalism school. No job, just a leg in. They paid your fees, they gave you a stipend and work experience. So a bit like the leaflet on the side of the wall at school, I wrote to them and said, yeah, I'd like to do this. And then I, you know, I was given a writing task and then I was called for an interview. Uh, Alan Rusbridger interviewed me. He was the features editor then. And I was asked at the interview, so if you could have any job, what job would you like at The Guardian? I said, I'd like to do what Hugo Young does. Hugo Mm. Young was kind of Mm. celebrated columnist at the time. And I was told, well, there's only room for one Hugo Young on a paper. And you just have to take my word for this, not out of arrogance, but out of that spirit that my mother had imbued in me, which was, well, you're going to have to create the space that you occupy. I just said, well, why shouldn't that be me? And they were like, yeah, fair enough. You know, okay. So I did that course, which went well, Mm. but there was no job at the end of it. So I did a little bit of freelancing. And then I got some shifts on Guardian Europe where I could use my languages. And while I was there, and this is kind of quite a typical liberal (laughs) dilemma, The Guardian was smart enough to know that there were stories in South Africa in the run-up to the first election that they couldn't really access because they didn't have black journalists there, Mm. but not institutionally developed enough to have the black journalists that they would want to send there. And Alan had interviewed me, and I told him in my interview, well, I was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement, and I set up this thing in college. And they also didn't know what the stories were, so they didn't Mm. want to waste a proper journalist. So I didn't have a job. And he said, would you like to go out and see what you can get? That's brilliant. Well, it was. And the amazing thing, I couldn't drive. I mean, I didn't have a driving license. And South Africa is quite a difficult place if you can't drive. But actually not being able to drive meant that you had to... Take a bus. Take a bus, which I did quite often, or find someone who's going somewhere. Mm. And they had me following Mandela on his campaign trail. And Mandela's bodyguards kind of find me just a very amusing chap. I'm 24, (laughs) 25. I studied in the Soviet Union, as had they. I'd been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. I made it my business to amuse them. And so they said, well, you know, we're going to do this next week. Why don't you come along with us? And so I had this ringside seat on this historical moment, traveling around with his bodyguards. So I'd stay wherever they stayed, Mm. wherever Mandela stayed. And I'm sure quite often Mandela woke up and was like, who's that guy (laughs) following us around? I wrote a piece called The Black Knight, which was about being on Mandela's campaign trail and just the amazing sight say, of being in a stadium that apartheid has put in some godforsaken place with people who've never seen Mandela on television because they haven't got a television. They've just mm. seen his face on posters. Mm. And they see the the entourage, the, the cavalcade in the distance. And there's 
ululating and the screaming starts and the singing and the joy and the, the dust comes closer and gets bigger and then Mandela would drive around the stadium a couple of times and I described him as the black knight on a white horse and that article that's the one that got me my job fantastic what a story I mean mm. what a what an arrival yeah and that was uh, when I met you I met you uh, there's no reason I knew you from the telly so there's no reason why you would remember but it was in Orlando Stadium in Soweto, there was a, a big rally. This is ridiculous, because here I am in awe of you. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, I knew you from off the telly. I mean, <laughs> there's something weird about that. And I said hello, and you said hello back. But that was, you know, there, oh. was, there, was not much, there was not much to say beyond that. Well, yeah. we've left it too long. <laughs> then coming back here and finding your footing doing what you do, how long did it take for that to happen? Quite a while. I would say. I remember writing a letter for a fellowship, which was a kind of central thing in what would happen next, and saying, I feel like at The Guardian is wonderful. I'm left to sink or swim, but each time I do that, I take in a bit of water. You know? And so I would... The Guardian was great for giving you challenges, and you would do them, but you kind of feel that you were doing it slightly by the seat of your pants. So I was on the foreign desk, which was a great education, to see all these experienced writers, see their copy coming in, mm. and to see what makes a good foreign correspondent and what doesn't. Probably talking to more diverse people than most. Yeah, there was a lot of space for stories, and The Guardian was very receptive to this, to stories that weren't going to be on the PA Newswire mm. list. But if you could persuade them, they were usually amenable, at least to the conversation, which I'm not sure would have been true in many other newsrooms. I haven't asked you about America. I applied for the Lawrence Stern Fellowship. Mm. Lawrence Stern was a Washington Post writer who was an Anglophile who died suddenly and unexpectedly, and among his friends was Ben Bradley of Watergate fame. And they set up a fellowship to send one British journalist to work at the Washington Post every summer. A very esteemed group of people had been before, including Jim Nochte and Jonathan Friedland, many others. And so I applied for this and was interviewed actually by Ben Bradley, and I got the Lawrence Stern Fellowship, and I went to D.C. And it was a great experience journalistically, but it was also the place where I met the woman who would become my wife. And so after then, I was tethered to America <laughs> that I hadn't been before. I had wanted to be the Moscow correspondent, and that wasn't going to happen now. And so we did a long-distance thing for a while. She came to Britain for a bit. And then in 2003, we moved to America and started a family there and lived there for 12 years. For very banal reasons, we ended up coming back. How well armed did you feel in having to tackle America? Because... South Africa isn't America, but there's mm. a lot of America that is South Africa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Journalistically, the one thing about America that made it easy was they never didn't want copy from there. Mm. And one of the things that could make it tricky was, just as in South Africa there were some stories that I could get, in America there were some stories I couldn't get. Like what? Well, I remember being in mississippi just before the trial of edgar ray killen who was convicted finally for the murder of the three civil rights workers in 64 which formed the basis of the mississippi burning movie and i remember asking directions 
to the place where the kids' bodies were buried and this man shouting. I knew not to step on anybody's property, but he shouted, we got a gun, we got a gun. And I said, okay, I'm just looking for Rock Creek Road, you know. We gonna shoot you. And I thought, you know, that's just daft. And so I asked again, keeping my distance well away. And then sure enough, he went and he got his gun. And this wasn't just racial. This was also about being an outsider. So an independent journalist also covering that story got his arm broken about three days later. It was a very rough part of the world. But I found... First of all, the time when I was in America was constantly amazing. I arrived three months before the Iraq war. Then there was the Bush-Kerry election. Then things went quiet for a little bit. Then there was Hurricane Katrina. There was Obama, the Tea Party, the financial crisis. Trump was just on his on mm. his way up. Sarah Palin. What a swell. It just didn't stop. And the job really was trying to capture some element of it and think you, you couldn't do the whole thing justice was finding a bit and saying okay i'm just going to sit with this for a little while you mentioned obama en passant did you meet him i never met him and what did you make of him somebody who wrote into the garden described me as a bit of an eeyore in the 2008 election because i kept saying look symbolically this is incredibly important and like shouldn't be underestimated but substantially he isn't that different to Hillary Clinton. Actually, he's not. His politics aren't radically different. He did oppose the Iraq war, which, had I been American, would have been reason enough for me to vote for him and not mm. her. But um, trying to disengage the symbol from the substance. And he was incredibly skilled at mixing them up. So when he won in Iowa, which really was the moment at which everything shifted. It was possible then. He said, they said this day would never come. You know, he doesn't say anything about race, but everybody knows what he means. And so I, in one piece, I called him the incognito. It was the worst kept secret about him. You know, mm. when he accepted the nomination, he said, as the old preacher said, and he was quoting Martin Luther mm. King. And I thought, I think you're okay quoting Martin Luther King. I think, you know, he's been sanctified. And so when he was elected, I mean, I think Biden has done a more kind of, you know, radical job than Obama mm. did. There is a challenge. And I, I remember interviewing Angela Davis, who's in the book, and her talking about there is a, a model of diversity in this moment as the difference that brings no difference and the change that brings no change. And so there was a way in which Obama looked different, but in many ways acted the same, and in some ways worse. If you think about drone attacks and deportations, he was actually worse than Bush. But a Rubicon had been crossed. A Rubicon had been crossed, and it was a very important Rubicon. And it was very important for me to kind of intellectually, really, make a clear distinction between the symbol and the substance and mm. to say, like, well, let's talk symbol because symbol is important. The idea that America had embraced a black man, whatever his qualities, yeah. was utterly magical. It was magical. And, and yet, this was the period in which Black Lives Matter exploded. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so America had proved that it could elect a black man and shoot a black child kind of all within the same kind of mm -hmm. election cycle. And um, nobody, including Obama, said, look, when I'm elected, that will be the end of racism. But it was almost like on a split screen 
that you had these moments of euphoria and these moments of resistance and rebellion and dismay. And he didn't do it, but it all happened around the same time. And so the symbol kind of took over. Mm. He was the picture in the barbershop and the diner and the beauty parlor. His picture would hang as JFK's used to, among mm. kind of, you mm. know, in Boston and so on. And you never want to downplay that. Mm. And it is possible to overplay it. You know, I would say my son was born the same weekend that he declared. I was pushing this boy around on a pram. And people would say, this will be a great thing for your son. And I would say to them, just tell me why. Not because I didn't believe them, but I just wanted them to finish that thought. Because if you don't finish that thought, then... You could say, well, Rishi Sunak is a great thing for Asians in this country. And I would ask the same question. Okay, why? And I, th I think it's a reasonable question. And I don't think you can ask it of one and not the other. It is interesting because I was covering that Obama's first election. And um, I remember a woman in, in tears on the curbside just throwing her fists in the air and said, we did it. And I said, what have you done? And she said, we've elected a black president. And there wasn't any exploration of what he would do or mm. any of that. It was that Rubicon that was crossed. Yeah. And it's important to honor that. Yeah. Right? It's important. Yeah, that is not mm. nothing. Not nothing. You know, three years after Hurricane Katrina to have done that. Mm. And what followed him? Donald Trump. When people ask me about America's gun, because my previous book was about all of the children who were shot dead in one day, and they asked me, you know, do you think America can ever sort this out? And I say, with only some irony, if America can elect Obama and then elect Trump, it can do anything. Hmm. It can do anything. And Trump was in no small part a response to Obama. It was a reaction to that. But that sense of multiracial, multicultural possibility, which came after Bush, of we want to be part of this world, not hide from this world. We are comfortable with the fact that white people will be a minority in 2032. We're confident. He embodied it. Hmm. I describe him in one of the pieces in the book of like Camelot without the castle. So all of that is important and can be both too easily dismissed and too easily over-interpreted. In some way there was something fabulously reassuring that you were right there inside the Guardian, in the system, capable of writing whatever you wanted to write. And now you got a bit rarefied. <laughs> You've gone off to this university, mm. and we don't want to lose you. Well, I'm not dead yet. I know you're not dead <laughs> yet, and you're still of the Guardian in some mm. form. Well, I still write. I mean... First of all, there are others, and they're kind of coming through, mm. or they're there, and it's quite an important thing, quite an Im important thing to kind of understand when to leave the ground and to support other people. Mm. Because at a certain point, it will turn, you know, you'll turn, oh my God, it's not him again. And you want to be able to support whatever's coming next. But I also did, after 26 years, I wanted to go slower. Mm. I wanted to spend longer talking about less mm. to take my time and to think that's an interesting thought give me a minute or a week it's a noble thought as long as you don't 
leave us all together. <laughs> uh, well, I write for the New Statesman, New York Review of Books, but it is, uh, rather than once a week, in a mm. place where people will go two or three times a day to get updates, they're in weekly and monthly mm. magazines. But I felt like it was time for me to do that. So when I say, like, giving other people, I wanted to do it. I wanted to kind of move on and mm. spend more time and read more books. and Spend more time with your kids. Spend more time with my kids and do less longer. Mm. So it, it wasn't an act of altruism. But I also did think, you've been here 26 years. That's almost literally a generation you can end up taking up a lot of oxygen in a range of ways. I didn't want to be that. And you're never going to get it quite right when to leave, so you can wait too long. But it felt like the right time for me. Well, Gary Young, it's been an absolute joy to speak with you and to listen to you. I've admired you all my working life. Well, not all of it, because you weren't around originally, because <laughs> I'm somewhat older than you. But I just want to thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. And I, you, the kind of, um, your... I don't know how I knew this, but I knew that as well as doing Channel 4 and being a kind of solid presence on Channel 4 News, that you also had a, a political life. And agenda would be the wrong word because it sounds sinister. Well, a political life enshrined in the voluntary sector. Yeah, and an engaged life. And there was a sense that, okay, that is possible. It is possible to be taken seriously as an arbiter in the news business, and not to pretend that you were completely devoid of your own worldview. I think, actually, we're two similar characters in that respect. But in that sense, you came first, and I remember huh. thinking, okay, so that's possible. Brilliant. I, I enjoyed that so much. It was a lot of fun. Seeing as we've never really had a conversation no. ever, to have a lovely conversation <laughs> like that and have it recorded is uh, a joy. That was Professor Gary Young, and the academic world should feel very lucky to have him. His new book is called Dispatches from the Diaspora, From Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter, and there are links to Gary's work in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered. Support comes from ServiceNow 
the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.